tonight as Jake and Justin were leading these songs and uh, sort of setting up what we wanted to do tonight as far as our lesson. We're, we're really sort of summarizing some of the things we talked about last weekend at our spring youth retreat. And we talked about our theme was passion. And we talked about there's three main points, at least, in our keynotes. And the first one was about passion. It is the passion that Jesus had in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. So if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to ask Christian to come up and read this verse. Matthew uh, chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And he saith unto, unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto, unto the disciples and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to, to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Thanks, Christian. Brother Chris Perry last Friday night gave the, the message about passion in the garden. Passion meaning suffering is what we're talking about. And he had several great notes about that. But as we look at this passage from Matthew, talking about Jesus in, in this garden of Gethsemane, and he takes the eleven apostles with him. And he goes into this garden. Then he takes Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden and asks them to wait. And then he goes on in a little further and begins to pray. And I remember Chris making this point, and I've always thought this. Uh, in my studies about Jesus and, and in my research, I think this is the lowest point in his life, the most sorrowful point in the life of Jesus is not on the cross, per se, but in the garden. Look at some of the things it states here. Verse 37. As he goes a little further with Peter and James and John, sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. I mean, he's bothered. I mean, he's really bothered. Verse 38. He even said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Just stay here and watch for me. To the point of dying, that's how sorrowful I am. You know, Luke records just how bad this was also. In Luke chapter 22, it talks about as Jesus is praying, 
angels come down to strengthen him. How sorrowful was he? How, how distressed was Jesus when miraculous strength, divine intervention has to help him to get through this? Luke also records how Jesus is so distressed and so distraught over what he's going through. Luke records as he's sweating, there's literally blood in his sweat. That is a medical condition and that can't can happen. That's how stressed out he was about this situation. You keep continuing, but notice verse 39. He went a little farther away from Peter and John and James and fell on his face. I think we've all maybe been in this situation where you just get so stressed and, and, and so, um, so down, so, so emotional maybe about things that you just, your legs just are queasy. You can't even, you can barely walk. But Jesus falls on his face. He falls down. And as he's down there, he begins to pray. He begins to talk. And it's what he says that's very interesting. What he says sort of tells us his mindset. And it tells us how heartfelt this prayer was. And the humility that he had in his prayer. He said in verse 39, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup of anguish. This cup of sorrow. Father, if there is any way possible, please let it pass. Please don't put me through it. If, big, huge, gigantic if, there was ever a time that the human part of Jesus could have taken over the divine part of Jesus, it would have been right now. If ever that was going to happen, Jesus could have said, oh, forget this, I can't do it. Angels, come on down, take care of the situation, I'm done. But he didn't. You look at verse 39, he says, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless. There's the humility part. There's Jesus humbling himself before his Father, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's how humble he was. And he's doing it for us, ladies and gentlemen. He goes to find Peter, John, James, and John. They're sleeping. He says, can you not watch? He goes a second time, verse 42, and prays basically the same thing. Oh, my Father, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. If Steve Hillis and you and everybody in the world cannot be saved unless I drink this cup that you're giving me, then let your will be done. I'll do it. Let me do it. He goes back, finds the three, sleeping, and he goes back and prays a third time the very same thing, and that's when Judas enters the picture. As Judas comes into the garden, he... Of course, the Judas betrayal kiss, identifying Jesus as the one they're looking for. And as he does that, he's taken into custody. There's a big, well, not a big battle, but a, 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 a ruckus stirred up with Peter and some others wanting to fight. And, and Jesus says, what, what, don't do that. Don't do that. I can, call, I can call angels. If I want to fight, 
If my king is of this earth, I can call I can call angels down to take care of the situation. Don't do that. Put your sword up. It's also in the garden you see the great care and compassion that Jesus had. He heals Malchus's ear or reattaches it and makes him whole. And then Jesus is taken into custody. He goes through all these mock trials before the Jewish high priest at night, very illegal. They condemn him within their, within their room. They beat him. They spit on him. They can condemn him to death, but they can't put him to death. The Roman government has to do that, and he's taken to Pilate. And that brings us to our next part of our story, as this story continues. We've talked about the passion, the suffering of Jesus in the garden. And I think the lowest point of his life. But now let's go to the next part of our lesson. It's passion on the cross. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to ask Keith to come up and read that section now. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27, verses 21 through 31. That's Matthew 27, 21 through 31. And the, the governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. So ye, see ye it to be? Then he answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then release Barabbas unto them, and when he had scrooged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. They, and then they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail the king of the, king of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him, and they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Thank you, Keith. So here is a situation. Here's a decision for the Jews who are standing before Pilate, who have brought Jesus to this judgment place. Barabbas or Jesus? And, and Pilate was willing to release somebody since it was the Passover. They wanted Barabbas, a murderer, released, and Jesus crucified. Pilate says, what has he done? Pilate interviewed him and talked to him and realized this man has done nothing worthy of, not only not even worthy of prison sentence, but not even worthy of death. He doesn't need to be executed. And Pilate says, why? What's he done? I release Barabbas, or I release Jesus to you. No, crucify him. We want him crucified, they said. And then Pilate, in this ceremonial type way, washes his hands, says, my hands are clean. And it may be one of the most surreal, eeriest statements in the Bible is how the people respond in verse 25. His blood be on us and on our children. I can't imagine. 
I cannot. Now, if I was in that, if that, at that time, I might have said the same thing. I don't know. I'm not necessarily trying to throw them under the bus, but I'm just saying, as you read a statement like that, now looking at it from retrospect, knowing that Jesus is the Christ, He is who He claimed to be, and the blood is on their head. And the blood is still on their children's heads, as history reveals to us. Is it on ours? Is the thing. Are we allowing the are we allowing the blood to be on us in a in a in a sinful way, or are we allowing the blood to be on us to wash our sins away? And that's the key. So as they're going through this, saying, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" and and Pilate gives in, flogs Jesus, scourges him, uh, Jewish. Flogging would have been a little different than Romans, and we've been over that from this pulpit several times. 39 times from a Jewish standpoint, Jesus would have been beaten uh, with a whip made out of animal skin. The Romans did a little differently. There was no set how many number of times they could beat you. Their whips had rocks and sharp articles on the end of it, and they could beat you as many times as they wanted to. Jesus would have been a bloody mess, cut to pieces. And then he goes to these soldiers who begin to mock him. Number one, most humiliating things you can't just stripping somebody down the way they did. Then putting this purple robe on him, representing royalty. Hitting him in the face, bowing down, said, Hell, King of the Jews, with that smart aleck grin on their face, I'm sure spitting in his face, hitting him with this reed, mocking him, and they finally put his own clothes on, verse 31, and they led him to be crucified, and he is crucified. There's three things about this. If we think about Jesus and the passion and the suffering he had on the cross, it's just unbearable. Yeah, I still say in the garden was the most sorrowful moment, but it was a weak moment too as he's taking this beating as he's the spit in the somebody spitting on you, having to carry his own cross, finally being nailed to it, and being that cross being lifted up above everyone, and Jesus looking down, and she, I'm sure he was in pain, but was it the physical pain or the emotional and spiritual pain, look it down on human beings saying, I'm doing this for you and you're not even getting it. I'm dying for you. I'm going through all this beating, the sorrow in the garden, the beatings, being nailed to this cross, and I'm doing it for you. And he was crucified. And he did die. But it was unavoidable. If you hold on to Matthew chapter 27, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Matter of fact, Jesus had told Pilate, you can't stop this. You know, Jesus had prayed, if it be your will, I'll let this pass, but it wasn't going to happen. This was the plan. And Pilate couldn't stop it. Nobody could stop it. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, notice this reading, because this was unavoidable. It reads, it reads, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect, mature, 
a completeness, if you will. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. If those sacrifices could have taken care of it, there was no need for Jesus. Continue reading. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Animal blood could not do it. It was going to take pure blood, sinless blood. And then verse 5 through verse 9 talks about, Therefore when he came to the world, he said, talking about sacrifice and offering, was not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. God preparing, the Father preparing the perfect sacrifice. The sinless, pure, righteous sacrifice, which would be Jesus. Then in verse 10, by that will, Jesus' will was to do the Father's will, by that will we have been sanctified, set apart, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This was unavoidable. Jesus paid the price for us and he had to. There was no other way. It was a very unselfish thing that Jesus did also. It was a willing sacrifice. He was willing to do it. So Jesus had a passion in the garden. He was willing to suffer. At his lowest moment, he went through with it. Jesus, Jesus was willing to endure being nailed to a cross to give us hope. Would it be sad if the story ended there? But the story does not end there. The story continues. And Jasmine will come up and read about that. All varying from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. <coughs> Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. He, his countenance was lightning, and, the, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Thanks, Jack. Mike and I are in the middle school and the high school, respectively, are, are beginning to teach some lessons on uh, the book of Revelation. And the great thing about that, about that book, that letter, is without what we just read... There is no revelation. I mean, it, it, we can read about the suffering that Jesus endured in that garden. And we can, we, can, we can read about and study about and I think understand, maybe, to a certain extent, the pain and suffering even on the cross. But everything is possible. Hope is available. The true grace of God can be seen because the tomb was empty. 
Because Jesus was raised from the dead. I just, I love, I cannot read that enough in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 28 and Mark 14 and Luke, uh, or, and Luke uh, 24. John 21 about he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He came back from the dead. Jesus came back from the dead. And, and there's several things about that account that we could talk about. The main thing I want to talk about or impress right now as we think about Jesus' passion in the garden and his passion on the cross is the passion after the cross. Not necessarily the suffering meaning of passion, but the zeal and the enthusiasm that we can have now because Jesus defeated death. Jesus came back from the dead, and Jesus gives us life, true life. If you want to go to Acts chapter 1 with me. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Beginning with verse 1. We read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, i.e. passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus showed himself alive. After he had died, he came back from the dead. I love zombie movies. I don't know why. They're silly, goofy, could never happen, right? They could never happen, right? I've always thought this might be a good place to be if a zombie apocalypse happened. I don't know. Well, except for the thousands that no, never mind. Walmart's right down the street. That wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. But this is something totally different. That's make believe. That's Hollywood. Jesus, however it happened in that tomb, after three days came back to life. And it's because of that that we can have life too. And he says here, Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, he presented himself alive after his passion by many unmistakable proofs. Nobody could deny it. He has shown himself to the apostles. Several times that he was alive. You remember... One of the last things we read about them in the garden was what? What happened? They were running for their lives. A month or so later, they're standing up before the same people who were trying to condemn, that condemned Jesus, trying to condemn them and saying, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Something changed them. Something got their attention. What about the Apostle Paul, the great persecutor of the church, at least at one time? Talk about a passion, a zeal, an enthusiasm to persecute Christians. Then all of a sudden he changes and starts talking about, oh, Jesus is the Christ. And it freaked people out. If you read, read chapter 9, especially, how as he, when he's in Damascus, and just, people are like, wait a minute, whoa, 
And when he tries to go back into Jerusalem, people won't even talk to him. Therefore, Barnabas had to take him and talk to the apostles. So what changed his mind? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of culture the Jewish nation had and has. The law of Moses. I mean, we're talking all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the way through. Circumcision, keeping the law, Passover. And all of a sudden they stopped doing that and following Jesus? What happened? What caused people to change in the first century like that? You know, Paul once wrote to the Corinthians, one of my favorite letters, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, how Jesus presented himself to over 500 people at one time. Now, the dynamics of that is this. Would Paul not look really foolish if all of a sudden some of these Corinthians want to go, okay, let's go talk to him? And they say, I don't know what he's talking about. But they could have, at that time, went to over 500 people and said, hey, this Paul said Jesus came back from the dead. Oh, yeah, we saw him. Oh, yeah, we saw him. Oh, yeah, we saw him. Oh, yeah, I sat down with him. Oh, yeah, I saw him over here. Oh, yeah, I was over here and I saw him. And on and on and on and on and on. Jesus came back from the dead because people began to follow him. It changed people's lives. So we think about, so where's our passion? What kind of passion now do we have? What kind of zeal do we have and enthusiasm to follow the Lord? He suffered for us in the garden. He had a passion to do that. That was his passion. He had a passion on the cross to die on that cross for us. Do we have that passion and zeal and enthusiasm now to follow Him? Now let's tie this together. Matter of fact, speaking of 1 Corinthians 15, would you turn there right now, please? And we'll finish with this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a genius of the Old Testament. He knew it. He understood it. It was taught to him by Gamaliel, one of the great doctors and, and, and scribes and teachers of his day. He knew it. So when he had that Old Testament law firmly implanted his knowledge, and then Jesus appears to him and teaches him and shows him, I'm the Christ, it was easy for Paul to put this together. Paul gets deep. The Ephesian letter is a deep letter. Romans is a deep letter, theologically strong. But notice the simplicity of what he tells the Corinthians. Begin with verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. I.e., Jesus was willing to suffer and to die at the hands of sinful men, so the Father could resurrect Him back to life, and hold him up and say, 
Children, here's my son. I lifted him up, and I can lift you up. I can make you whole, and I can save your sins through my son if you'll follow him. And we can right now, if you need any help, as we stand and sing.